Hello, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. I am Marley Powell, and thank you for listening to the Black Skin Red Heart podcast. Black Skin Red Heart is a podcast that covers the unique narrative of Black Americans and communism and contextualizes that history around convergences between the two through American history. Today, we're continuing the story of Harry Haywood, a Black American communist whose incredible life spanned American and European history. Harry was born at the turn of the century to former slaves. His childhood was abrupt, and he was aged into adulthood by his young teenage years. He fought in the First World War and then returned to Chicago to find himself with the growing Black working class. This episode covers the integration of the Chicago labor movement told through Harry's experiences as a growing Black American communist. We'll focus on Harry's rise through the Communist Party in Chicago, and then how Harry ended up studying at a university in Moscow. This is an episode I'm really excited about and was happy to be able to finally get out. Uh, it's a really, really in-depth one, and goes even deeper into the history of the labor movement in Chicago in the 1920s. Part 3, The Negro Question There had been significant efforts by Republican presidents in the late 19th and early 20th century to attempt to integrate the American civil service. It had been an evolution of the party's larger historical and moral platform. By 1910, over 500 black Americans were working for the post office in just Chicago alone. And this federal workforce was maintained through attempts to protect the black workers. In Congressman Martin Madden's area, the first district of Chicago, that was certainly the case. Like many of the immigrants of his era, Madden was a lifelong Republican. He was born in 1855 in England to Irish parents. Madden's family immigrated to the United States and then settled in Chicago by 1869, by the time he was 14. Madden graduated from both a business college and an engineering trade school. He ended up in politics after being an industry leader where he was president of the Quarry Owners Association as well as director of the Builders and Traders Exchange of Chicago. In 1889, he was elected to the Chicago City Council and eventually he made his way to Congress by 1904. Madden was elected to Congress in a predominantly black district, and he was the last non-black elected to hold that seat in Chicago. He died as a truly lifelong serving elected official, collapsing on his desk in an Appropriations Committee meeting room in 1928. After years of public service, he totaled 23 years in Congress alone. And as an elected Republican in Congress, his work reflects that he tried to protect the black residents of Chicago in many of the ways where he could. In Chicago, Madden was a leading voice against the segregation efforts of Democratic President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson had been working in several ways to reduce the number of black workers in the federal workforce, like acting to officially segregate the post office. For Madden, this was an important fight against the powers of Washington. At the time, the post office was the major opportunity for black people to enter the clerical service. In Chicago, with an enormous black population, the clerical service was an ability for black people to begin a professional career. For Madden and his constituency, this was necessary to protect. At this time, the basic trades were mostly segregated, 
and many black workers who were barred from the unions entered the basic trades as strikebreakers. By the time Harry returned to Chicago after the war, the black middle class were made up of professions like clerical workers and public service, like the post office, and then down the line as waiters and porters, and then lastly as tradesmen. After his return to Chicago from the war, Harry was making two sets of friends. There were those he found through his new job, and then there were the communists who he was falling in with. The communist friends came from the time he spent with his brother, Otto. Harry had also found a place in the world, in the mostly white money world of Chicago, at a country club. Harry and the other black workers there saw a side of Chicago largely unseen. At the country club and with the communists, Harry found himself pulled between two worlds. Harry was smart and for a time found himself able to coexist with the employees and the members at the club. He found himself fitting in well with this wealthier living set at first, despite them being relative strangers to him and his way of life. This was an athletic club that served the wealthier Chicago elite, and Harry found a job there because unsurprisingly it was mostly staffed by black workers, and he had heard of an opening. Though he became close with them, there was a difference between Harry and these workers. He found that many had not fought in the war. He thought that they were from the city in a sheltered kind of way. By this point, Harry had lived in Kansas, Minnesota, and Chicago. He'd seen warfare, been to Europe, and now realized that he had been exposed to things that so many in his generation had not. Though who he worked with were black working class, these workers were weary of radical politics or politics at all and Harry didn't understand it. They seemed timid and professionally focused rather than socially focused and trying to act collectively as workers for a better future. This black working class was a revolution in America, but Harry didn't see it as radical. They were radical, but not in the way he wanted them to be. These workers were trailblazers in a different way. They were occupying positions professionally and socially that black workers had not reached before, certainly not in the numbers they were now. The job at the club exposed Harry to a set of black workers who were desirous of creating a new kind of American generation, one with access to money, commodities, and maybe the ability to purchase access to the American dream. Witnessing this growing desire in this generation for an American life that was new, Harry saw these black Americans' aspirations as more of one uh, seeking an upper-crust way of life, created by the sheer force of bourgeois will. However, with their presence in the country club scene or in the business world of Chicago, these black Americans were creating a new kind of black American, not just shaped by new economics, but created by their place and proximity to black and white worlds. Through the job at the club, Harry would meet a black secretary named Hazel, who worked at Montgomery Ward. The workers at the club would socialize with the other black workers at institutions in Chicago that were also slowly integrating. Montgomery Ward was a firm that was the first to hire black women as office clerks. Hazel would go on to be Harry's first wife. Harry and Hazel married in the fall of 1919. He was attempting to build the life he felt was expected of him. Almost immediately, Harry felt put in a box. 
He felt the world and life that was expected of a smart black man like him was limiting. A job working for whites, a wife with the same, a home and children soon on the way, their life made better by more things. This is the time where his radicalism started to shape. He found his growing radicalism and conflicting social and cultural desires hard to reconcile. Every day he tried to fit himself into a mold where he fit less and less. There were tensions almost immediately in the marriage. Harry was coming to realize that he didn't want to be in a marriage. He didn't want to work up through this system to appease his bosses and society. He was dispirited that Hazel was happy with it. She also didn't understand where Harry's anger came from or why he felt shackled. By all accounts, they were in the right place to be able to ascend into the modern world. She couldn't understand why Harry was rejecting the world he lived in entirely. Harry did love Hazel, but his life was built around what was expected of him and not what he expected it to be. Ignoring that our country's class structure is intertwined with race is a short-sighted way to approach American history. Race exists alongside class when the state reinforces certain ideas of race to perpetuate a class dynamic and structure. This structure often puts black people into certain positions and social dynamics from their birth. The growth of post-industrial capitalism in America provided a new growth opportunity for black Americans one that would give them financial access to a world and built the idea that the access to financial capital would supersede their inherent social position. Another perspective was that black Americans' movement into an area like industrial American work often came at the expense of white workers who were being ousted from their jobs when the owners wanted to undercut their current workers by paying even lower wages. Lenin said, this petty bourgeois utopia, which is inseparable from the ideas of the state being above the classes, led in practice to the betrayal of the interests of the working classes. For a time, Harry fit in at the country club and with the bourgeois black population he was mingling with at work and outside. But soon Harry realized he was merely existing alongside this world. His job paid some bills, but what it promised him was the social world it connected him into. Harry soon saw an aloofness in everyone and began to find it enraging. They were all disconnected from what he felt was reality. That a world outside of whatever they thought they lived in enforced the social order they were happily embracing. Harry wanted freedom. He had seen something of the world and wanted to see more. He wanted to do something different with his life. Black people who desired joining the ranks of closed-off elitists was not where Harry wanted to be. When these realizations came through to him, his drinking grew, his anger grew, and eventually it broke. Soon he lost his job at the athletic club. Then he lost another, and another. He was being banned from working due to his short fuse and temper. He'd snap at any injustice that to him seemed to stem from the way the world was coming at him. Harry was doing a lot of reading at this point, discovering the propaganda of history, as W.E.B. Dubois put it. Harry was reading anti-bourgeois authors, Dubois, J. Rogers, Marx, Engels, Max Nordau, and again and again the book he states is the most important in his life, 
Vladimir Lenin's State and Revolution. By the summer of 1920, Harry and Hazel had divorced when he was 22. Harry cut out his friends from the club and the other black bourgeoisie, but Harry still needed a job, and so Otto helped him shuffle into, into where many other black workers were ending up, the post office. For most of the people Harry's age, the post office acted as a middle point in their professional lives. For them, it was something after school or the war and before whatever was next. Most of them were students and aspired to forge ahead on whole new roads. This was a different sort than he'd been exposed to, a different working class. It was at the post office where Harry began to feel less alienated. They talked about the authors they were reading and the political ideas they were exploring. Harry found, though, that what they were mostly interested in doing was talking about these ideas. The ideas were not being applied to the world where they were living and working. This lack of application of theory helped Harry put into view the need for another kind of work altogether, organizing on the front lines. Harry said, Most of those with whom I fraternized considered the postal job as temporary, a step to other careers. Our interest at the time, therefore, was not so much with the immediate economic or on-the-job needs of black postal workers, but with the race problem generally. The drive for unionization of postal employees was to come later. Harry was impatient about the lack of application, but his practical knowledge of communism, organizing efforts, and revolution would come later, too. He would need his time in Moscow to bring himself fully to where he came to understand the purpose of revolution. In Russia, he would learn directly from revolutionaries. They would detail their struggle to perfect propaganda, uh, pursue party organization and military strategies. It would be in Moscow where Harry would truly radicalize. At the post office in Chicago, he started to see his purpose to properly organize. It would be in Chicago where Harry would see the already reaching historic black presence in communist politics as well. Soon he would find it would be the communists in Chicago that finally placed him in a context and in a world where he wanted to be. In 1919, the year after the end of the First World War, the same year as the Red Summer, the Communist Party of the United States of America, the CPUSA, would be created. Like most communist groups, it began from infighting between socialists. The farther left members of the Socialist Party of America were expelled for organizing against the moderate wing. They were working to establish a Soviet form of government in the United States after the success of the Russian Revolution. It's not clear how concrete or far along their plans were, but it was still too much for many of the socialists. The far left of the Socialist Party had also been loud in their objection to Woodrow Wilson's efforts to sell the First World War, which they called imperialist. The far left members objected to Wilson's argument that the war was a, quote, war to make the world safe for democracy. More moderate socialists felt the objection to a popular war would be bad for appealing their cause to Americans. Others in the party saw it as a moral issue. Objections to the First World War became a defining line in the early stages of American socialism. Members who voiced objection to the First World War were expelled from the Socialist Party of America, but instead of combining their powers to combat the growing power of the Socialist Party of America, 
Many of the expelled members formed two groups, the Communist Labor Party of America and the Communist Party of America. Eventually, in the next few months, the Communist Labor Party would merge with the Communist Party of America to become one party, the CPUSA. Though 1919 was a year of endless important events, one of importance for this story is the creation of a black political liberation organization in New York City. A black businessman from Omaha, Nebraska, named George Wells Parker, founded a magazine called The Crusader. Wells Parker wanted a magazine to support causes he was ideologically in line with and wanted to promote, so an early stance from The Crusader would be their endorsement of the early Socialist Party. The Crusader supported the Socialists because of their firm public objection over lynchings in the South. The Crusader would also act as the mouthpiece for another organization Parker founded, the African Blood Brotherhood. He aimed it to be the largest union of black workers. George Wells Parker grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, just before the time that Harry spent his childhood there. Harry was born in 1898, and Parker was born a little over a decade earlier in 1882. Parker viewed Africa as a central part of black American identity and published a popular pamphlet called Children of the Sun, that became an influential text for black nationalism. It was published by the Hamitic League of the World, another organization Parker founded, which sought to inspire the Negro with new hopes. The Children of the Sun pamphlet would go on to be successful and would lead Wells Parker to found more papers and organizations supporting the causes he firmly believed in. Wells Parker did not have to leave Omaha due to its racial tensions. In fact, once Parker made his money, he began to work to establish a stable black community in the Omaha area. After the Hamitic League's success with the Children of the Sun pamphlet, they decided to create a journal. The journal would employ black workers, and Wells Parker decided he would hire a writer named Cyril Briggs to run it. Cyril Briggs was a racially mixed man from the Caribbean whose father was a white plantation overseer. Harry said of meeting Briggs that he was so light in complexion that he was often mistaken for white. Cyril Briggs's light skin helped him receive an education aided by his father's position, but he was ultimately denied access to the island's upper class due to his race. Cyril Briggs's radicalism was born from his first exclusions. Briggs began writing on the island and soon became published in the papers there. Still, there was a limit for what he could do. So on the island, working for the white owners who printed their own papers, he was chained to what they did or didn't want published. Briggs realized it was their paper. But in America, he could help create something new. At the end of the century in Harlem, a huge influx of black immigrants from the Caribbean poured in, and Briggs joined them. He moved to Harlem, where his first writing job came from a black life-focused newspaper called Amsterdam News. The newspaper focused on black issues in the United States, and the paper is still located in Harlem and running after 110 years. It was at the Amsterdam News where Cyril Briggs launched himself in America and made a name for himself. From there, he joined the paper The Crusader, hired directly by George Wells Parker. Cyril Briggs felt there was a purpose of black-controlled media to overcome the direct violence of oppression. Quoting him, 
This Caucasian propaganda aims to exalt the white races into the heavens of the little tin gods by the blatant declaration of the inferiority of the darker races and the effective attempt to cover up their achievements in the past so that the white man may claim credit for all that has been done in the development of civilization. At first, the crusader would go on to support the Marcus Garvey movement, and this support would unfortunately tie them to the political activist Garvey. Garvey was an early target of the Bureau of Investigation, the predecessor to the FBI. When Garvey was arrested by American authorities for mail fraud, the crusader halted its publication. Despite the attention that the crusader received for their relationship with Garvey, the crusader and Briggs personally had a very tenuous relationship with Garvey, even before it was difficult for them politically. Garvey, a different kind of Caribbean radical, took personal issues with Cyril Briggs, the mixed-race writer, calling him, quote, a white man trying to pass himself off as a Negro. This insult caused a personal split between the men and nearly split the two groups, even before the takedown of Garvey. But the takedown of Garvey happened before any real destruction between those two could happen. And their early connection was enough for the Bureau to quiet the Crusader. George Parker Wells decided that he would focus his attention on the African Blood Brotherhood instead. He would go on to continue to organize the group's members. The African Blood Brotherhood's purpose was to try and match membership of black workers with the recently formed CPUSA. The two groups were trying to do something that hadn't been done. Quietly, the African Blood Brotherhood and the CPUSA were working together to try and unite black and white workers, and they were doing it through two separate organizations. The African Blood Brotherhood would be one of the major early black radical parties that, through their organizing capability, demanded attention from the Communist Party. The ABB would be a major factor in the Communist Party's shift in their platform to acknowledge the situation of black people and black workers in America. Harry first tried to officially join the Communist Party in 1922, but Otto held him off. Otto warned about the racism that was rife within party ranks. Instead, Otto brought Harry to the African Blood Brotherhood. Its members, like Harry, had not joined the Communist Party and instead organized within the African Blood Brotherhood. At that time, the ABB were using its members to organize for and support the Communist Party, but retain control of their members and that leverage over the CPUSA. They were trying to build a powerful organizing body with autonomy from the larger organization. Their aim was to use this for bargaining power with the CPUSA to change some of the racist elements within. The ABB eventually minimized their operations when enough of its members' participations grew within the Communist Party bloc and black voices gained a footing for a base. Briggs and other leaders left to absorb into the CPUSA to take some control of the Communist Party platform. Though when these members left, the organization slowed in some of its efforts, the African Blood Brotherhood didn't disappear entirely. At the time, its members were largely made up of the black tradesmen, plumbers, electricians, and bricklayers who avoided joining the white unions. Harry did not leave the ABB for the CPUSA. He began to work with the higher-up members of the ABB who who he had heard speak before, but he had not worked with directly. 
These members largely operated as local activists who engaged themselves and organized groups and local struggles that the community faced. They weren't focusing on larger issues or party politics. This is where Harry found ideology put into practice. The African Blood Brotherhood is where Harry first encountered black industrial workers and tradesmen in great number. He was emboldened by their class consciousness and openness for militant organization and solidarity. Harry regarded Lenin's belief in the self-determination of nations that a nation was not defined by usual nation-state borders. Stalin, paraphrased, called nations a stable community of people on common land with a common language. The Declaration of Independence for the United States says that governments derive just powers from the consent of the governed, that the governed are people who are bound politically. Lenin, again, the Negroes were the last to be freed from slavery, and they still bear more than anyone else the cruel marks of slavery, even in advanced countries, for capitalism has no room for other than legal emancipation, and even the latter it curtails in every possible way. Lenin said of the self-determination of nations in 1914, throughout the world, the period of the final victory of capitalism over feudalism has been linked up with the national movements. For the complete victory of commodity production, the bourgeoisie must capture the home market, and there must be politically united territories whose populations speak a single language with all obstacles to the development of that language eliminated. There it is the economic foundation of national movements. Therefore, the tendency of every national movement is towards the formation of national states, under which these requirements of modern capitalism are satisfied. Consequently, if we want to grasp the meaning of self-determination of nations, not by juggling with the legal definitions or inventing abstract definitions, but by examining the historico-economic conditions of the national movements, we must inevitably reach the conclusion that the self-determination of nations means the political separation of these nations from alien national bodies and the formation of an independent national state. The Declaration of Independence for the United States even warns that prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be ch changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. The next two parts... When Harry is in Moscow, I plan to give another perspective on violence faced by minorities in the USSR, Harry's relationship with Stalinism and Leninism, and the grand plans of self-determination, and its application to black Americans. It goes without saying that there was a significant amount of violence and oppression by communists against groups that Stalin defined as stable communities of people on common land, and that self-determination, even in the USSR, would be something that could bring great violence to a people. For Harry, though, Lenin was directly addressing and offering answers to questions that white American comrades of black workers wouldn't address about the black experience in America. Much of the appeal of this ideology were socially revolutionary ideas of what Lenin was saying to the beleaguered people all over the world. In 1920, for the Second Congress of the Communist International, Lenin declared, 
All communist parties should render direct aid to the revolutionary movements among the dependent and underprivileged nations, for example, Ireland and the American Negroes. The Soviet Communist Party wanted to make good on promises to render aid elsewhere, and they began sending out emissaries to cities around the world seeking to engage these dependent and underprivileged nations. One of these Soviet emissaries was sent to Chicago. Harry would make a good friend in the Communist Party in Chicago. George Mazout was a Russian representative of Young Communist International. Mazout came from the Soviet Georgia area. Soviet Georgia was a Russian territory where Lenin had brought the ideas of self-determination. Mazout was sent to the United States as a Soviet representative. As a member of an underprivileged nation, he was tasked with looking closely into the Afro-American question in the United States and to see if he could find any confirmation for that of Russian leaders that the right of self-determination was the appropriate slogan for black rebellion in the United States. At first, Harry told Mazout he didn't believe black people were a national minority but a racial one, and that self-determination in reference to black Americans was just another version of separatism, which he was against. Mazout kept raising the issue at the Chicago District Committee meeting, and he was shouted down. The white communists silenced Mazout and said, Blacks are Americans. They want equality, not separation. Harry said that he and the other black members who were present that day stayed noncommittal on the matter, but it quietly died out as a question for Mazout. So the meeting stayed focused that their immediate concern was the status of black American workers. Both black and white communists were unwilling to even discuss the details of this Leninist policy relating to black Americans' autonomy and what the reshaping of America on these kinds of economic lines would look like. By 1923, the African Blood Brotherhood had dissolved entirely, and Harry had left. He was still wanting to join the Communist Party and thought this might be the time. Harry was a well-regarded and impressive young communist, and so many wanted him in the fight, drafting members into other organizations so they could eventually feed into the CPUSA. Because of this, he was again directed away from joining the Communist Party and was persuaded that his abilities would be better utilized in the Young Communist Workers League. The League needed significant bolstering and organizing. It was a communist group that was trying to do a lot of good but was kept from it by the holes in the organization. Holes and faults that Harry could easily resolve because they required his community knowledge, his abilities as a strategist, and then as an organizer. The Young Communist Workers League needed to make significant inroads towards reaching young black workers in Chicago. By this point, the assimilation of the African Blood Brotherhood into the CPUSA had been successful in somewhat lessening the racism and issues facing some black workers, though they had not been successful on all fronts. The party faced an issue with their youth league, which was dealing with the same problem the larger party did a few years earlier and not being able to draft young, white, or black workers. The white district organizer who held sway in the youth league personally asked Harry to join him to heal this part of the gap. He wanted to get young workers of all races entering the jobs and trades. Harry joined the Young Communist Workers League to try and help them draft black youth. No surprise, he was very successful at it. Harry faced rebuffs from black friends at this time. 
it was getting more dangerous to be a communist in the United States. And a friend told Harry, to be black and red at the same time, well, that's just double trouble. And when you mix in the whites, why, that's triple trouble. But all of these things didn't deter Harry. In fact, it made him realize that creating any positive between blacks and whites in the United States was going to take more than a political ideology, especially when he saw how easily ideology could be distorted. Harry said, I failed to understand the contradictory nature of black nationalism. I had rejected it totally as a reactionary bourgeois philosophy, which in the conditions of the U.S. had found its logical expression in Garvey's Back to Africa program. It was therefore a diversion from the struggle for economic, social, and political equality, the true goal of blacks in the United States. The fight for equality, I felt, was revolutionary in that it was unattainable within the framework of the U.S. capitalist society. Nationalism, moreover, was divisive and played into the hands of the reactionary racists. While rejecting nationalism, I also rejected the bourgeoisie assimilationist position of the NAACP and their blind acceptance of white middle-class values and culture. Harry felt himself between a rock and a hard place. Leftist politics were going to eventually clash with race politics if no changes were made. Harry was faced with the decision of how to best move forward within the Communist Party. It was a tricky place for Harry. It was a matter of contending with a revolutionary moment in a period of revolution where it viewed race as a drag on the movement and on pure class struggle, which for Harry meant that everyone was taking steps backwards. At this time, Eugene Debs said, We have nothing special to offer the Negro, and we cannot make separate appeals to all the races. The Socialist Party is the party of the working class, regardless of color. Harry was successful with the Youth League, but his purpose was to feed into a behemoth of a party system that he believed was lacking in major ways. With all of that in mind, Harry joined the Communist Party officially in 1925. He was living back with his family as he worked full-time for the party. He'd work odd jobs on the weekends and nights when he could, but the majority of Harry's hours were spent working for the major figures in the Chicago Communist Party. In mainstream Chicago Communist Party activities, the man who took Harry under his wing was a man named Robert Miner. Miner was born on July 15, 1884. Miner's great-grandfather on his father's side was Thomas Jefferson's campaign manager and his great-grandfather on his mother's side was Sam Houston, the first president of the Republic of Texas. Miner was of a distinct, radical American bloodline. It's not a surprise that in the early 20th century he would fall into radical politics like integration and communist politics to try and repair in some way the country his family had founded. Professionally, Miner worked as a journalist and cartoonist. Politically, he was a communist and a radical one. Miner had been sent to Europe to cover the war as a journalist. During his time in Western Europe, he found his way eastward and into Russia in 1918, just after the revolution. By 1919, he had made his way back to Western Europe. In Western Europe, Miner helped organize French railway workers to strike and stop munitions shipments to the Russian battlefront, a move that assisted the Bolsheviks and dealt a blow to the White Army. For his actions to assist the Red Army, Miner was arrested in France, but the grandson of Sam Houston made it back to the United States and the charges melted away.
These kinds of war stories really impressed Harry, who felt Minor was a communist by his actions, not just his rhetoric. Both men would bond over telling stories of their time in Europe. Minor was a first-hand witness to Soviet Russia in its infancy, and was changed by seeing it. Here was where Harry began to learn more about the Soviet Union. Minor would regale Harry with stories of Lenin, who Minor had met personally, and who Harry was infatuated with. Harry had met Russians when he was in Europe, but this was a new side of the world, and a new way he thought he could get involved. Minor brought Harry to work with him directly when the party had assigned Minor the party's Negro work. Minor was sensitive to his family's racist past and wanted to work his best to do what he could to repair some damage, at least as much as one man can. Minor and his wife Lydia opened their apartment to large gatherings of black and white communists to get together and discuss the issues of the day. Guests would include head of unions, higher-ups in the NAACP, as well as a few chairs of departments at Howard University. Here, Harry began to socialize with a new and different kind of communist. Minor helped Harry grow his world out a bit, even more, and involved him with communism in ways Harry hadn't even considered and thought of. The fourth convention of the CPUSA was filled with infighting and fractional fights that threatened the party's future. Neither side appeared to be addressing the Negro issue. Harry was sent by Richard Minor on behalf of Charles C.E. Ruthenberg, a hero for the movement. Harry was tasked with understanding the issues at the conference and to do what he could to make any changes or cause any influence. Ruthenberg trusted Minor to take a lead as a delegate for him, and Minor trusted Harry more than most. A few years earlier, in May 1917, C.E. Ruthenberg was one of the socialists that had opposed the First World War and broken the party apart. It was in May of 1917 that Ruthenberg gave a speech condemning the imperial actions of the United States for entering the First World War, and he was arrested and charged for violating the Espionage Act. The Espionage Act was passed by U.S. authorities by order of Woodrow Wilson to silence dissenters as the war was ramping up its efforts. The Espionage Act was passed by U.S. authorities by order of Woodrow Wilson to silence dissenters as the U.S. was ramping up its war efforts. Ruthenberg was arrested in June of 1917, right before the act passed, and tried in July of 1917, one month after the act passed into law. He was sentenced to one year in the Ohio State Penitentiary, a decision that was upheld by the Supreme Court. The Ruthenberg faction of the party saw themselves as the true Marxists, a martyred minority. There was a building movement on the other side of the party to oust Ruthenberg and his Marxist faction. They were assembling delegates to send out to the convention to build their strength. In order to keep the party from wholly fracturing so soon after it had just settled, the Soviets sent an advisor to moderate. Sergei Ivanovich Gusev, who was known to the Chicago party under the alias of Comrade Green, was a founding member of the Bolshevik faction of Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, the first union of revolutionary factions in the Russian Empire between roughly 1900 and 1910. Gusev was a leading and significant military figure during the Russian Civil War and was picked for his seniority. He arrived one week into the CPUSA convention. 
It was believed Gusev was sent by the Russians on behalf of the anti-Ruthenberg faction to quell dissent and smooth over party politics. To their surprise, when Comrade Green arrived, he announced that not only did Ruthenberg have his support, but it was decided in Moscow that Ruthenberg was more loyal to the Comintern philosophy. Ruthenberg being a political enemy of the United States was a factor that the party moderates failed to fully consider. This starts to lay the groundwork for the question of Soviet support of fractional politics in America when looking at the support for black workers and the self-determination of black Americans. Another point here that begs to be mentioned to frame all of this is that one year previously Vladimir Lenin had died. In the significant absence of Lenin, the Soviets put in place Joseph Stalin. Gusev and Stalin were loyal to one another, or rather Gusev was loyal to Stalin. Gusev was called a genuine agent of Stalin's by Trotsky. Gusev handled the Chicago party faction crisis by using a Soviet process procedure to break dissent slowly. Gusev established what he called a parity committee. It compromised an equal number of top leaders of both factions, with himself as the neutral chairman. Since the two factions were evenly represented on the committee, Gusev was the deciding vote. After hearing both sides and without speaking, Gusev then read aloud a memo. Communist International had sent a cable that was to be presented to the parody committee. Under no circumstances should the foster majority be allowed to suppress the Ruthenberg group because the Ruthenberg group is more loyal to decisions of the Communist International and stand closer to its views. It has the majority or strong minority in most districts, and the foster group uses excessively mechanical and ultra-factional methods. The room felt the effects of the orders from Moscow and Gusev's deciding vote on the matter. Communist International's memo continued and sent suggestions for the future organization of party structure. Foster, the opposition, refused to accept the terms and ceded leadership entirely to the Ruthenberg faction at the convention. The convention ended up being a historic success for black communists and black Americans as it adopted into its platform advocating for the right for the black vote, abolition of Jim Crow in law and custom, opposition to segregation, and opposition to intermarriage laws. The main thrust of what was adopted that was positive and specifically for black workers was the real aim towards unity of black and white labor. Coming out against racial separatism and calling for the inclusion of black workers in existing unions. The platform read, Our party must work along the unorganized Negro workers, destroying whatever prejudice may exist against trade unions, which has been cultivated by the white capitalists and the Negro petty bourgeoisie. Our party must make itself the foremost spokesman for the real abolition of all discrimination of the as yet largely unorganized Negro workers in the same union with the white workers on the same basis of equality of membership, quality of right to employment in all branches of work, and equality of pay. This was a major change and step forward. A change to the American communist platform that only happened from the presence and work of a few select black delegates at the convention like Harry, who pushed for real changes to the party operations. These would also be major steps to properly integrate the United States. 
At the fourth convention of the CPUSA, when the Ruthenberg faction took over the party, Harry moved up in the ranks in Chicago with Minor. Next to Minor in his new status in Chicago, Harry met a man named Otto Hugheswood. Hugheswood was a famous black South American immigrant who was known to be the first black member of the American communist movement. Communist International had made Hugheswood a major figure in their movement. In the early 1920s, Hugheswood had been to Moscow, and he returned with an order to come back to Moscow with a delegation of black communist students from America. Hugheswood wanted to take young black Americans to the USSR to get a new kind of education. He saw this as the first of many trips. And soon after meeting Harry in Chicago, Hugheswood selected him to be one of the students to study in Moscow. The New York Times described the decision to send young black Americans to Moscow as sending, quote, 10 blacks to the Soviet Union to study Bolshevism and prepare for careers in the communist diplomatic service. In the same article, the Times are also calling for actions to be taken against the CPUSA for such subversive activity. At this point, Harry believed in the Communist Party because of the effects he'd seen his work and others' work accomplish. He realized you could make real inroads. Though the boy from Omaha had not yet come close to peaking, this was his initiation into the world. The boy from Omaha was soon leaving Chicago and arriving again in Europe. When Harry was drafted into the student body heading to Moscow, he was leaving behind several things. One of them was his name. I have been calling him Harry from the start, but he had a different legal name. Haywood Hall Jr. was Harry's name on his paperwork up until this point. However, Haywood Hall Jr. was not the name he wanted to put on the application. For years, the federal government took interest in the people around the communist movement, and the Bureau of Investigation was interested in the students that were generating attention. Because of this new set of different and hazardous groups, he applied on the documents under a new name, Harry Haywood. Two names taken from his family, his mother Harriet and his father Haywood. Harry Haywood was born in paperwork to avoid government scrutiny. Harry had been given little instruction. He wasn't sure when he was to leave. And then one day, sitting at home, he received a call that requested him to come down to the party offices. At the party office, Harry was given credentials, not the credentials he expected. He didn't receive paperwork. When Harry arrived, they took his coat off of him and walked him to a desk. His special credentials were written on smaller slips of fabric and sewn into silk. These silk credentials were stitched secretly into the lining of his coat along the collar and inside the arms. The leaders of the party sat him down to go over the plan. Harry's path into Russia was a zigzag through Europe, shipping vessels, safe houses, and long drives. The path in Europe to Moscow was going to start in Berlin. In order to get to Berlin, however, he had to get to Canada from Chicago. Harry was told they were avoiding the port of New York, as any presence there would bring authorities. Soon after leaving the offices with his sewn-in plans, Harry was funneled from comrade to comrade across the north and west to Canada, from Detroit to Toronto to Montreal, where he was booked on a ship out of Quebec, across the Atlantic, to Hamburg. The Empress of Scotland sailed across the Atlantic, and in about two weeks, Harry was once again on the shores of Europe. 
this time 800 miles from where he landed nearly a decade earlier. Thank you for listening to the third part of the Harry Haywood biography on the Black Skin Red Heart podcast. I am Marley Powell, the researcher and writer of this podcast. If you have any questions, please email me at redheartpod at gmail.com. The fourth episode is up next, Moscow Part 1. It's the longest in the series by far, so I had to split it up. I hope that it will be out next month. I had a series of tech issues that kept this episode from coming out on time. But in the next episode, we'll be spending a lot of time on Harry's trip to Moscow, his experiences there, and what the Soviet schooling he had he was a part of looked like. We will also get into the further development of his theory of self-determination as he saw it on the ground in the Soviet Union. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am enjoying it putting it together. So join me next time with the Harry Haywood biography, part four, Moscow, part one. Thank you for listening.